I should probably do a, uh, a very quick public service announcement here. Um, if you sense that I've been avoiding you this morning, uh, you're right, I have. Um, I think I have a 24-hour bug. I am much better than I was yesterday, but you don't want what I had. So I am going to keep my distance, uh, not because I don't love you, but because I do. So uh, now you know. If I did not greet you or give you a hug or shake your hand, now you know why. One of the challenges of preaching from the book of James is to not sound like you're scolding people. Spurgeon said, at all costs, avoid the scolding tone. Nobody should be listening to someone preach and go, I wonder who they're mad at. As you probably already know, James is pretty direct. Um, he calls it like he sees it, um, not harshly. But if you miss the point that James is making, it's probably because you wanted to miss it. He's very direct, he's very clear, he's very blunt. Um, good friends talk that way sometimes, don't they? they, they they'll tell you clearly, with the risk maybe of offending you on occasion, what they see and why they are concerned. That's what Proverbs 27 is referring to when Solomon writes this, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. We love it when people kiss us, so to speak, tell us nice things, warm things, encouraging things. And obviously, Scripture is clear. We should encourage one another. But not everything I do is worthy of encouragement. Some things I do are worthy of correction, even rebuke. And James says that's, that's just how it is for a church and how it is for Christians. So James is that kind of friend. He's the one who will speak the truth in love, even if he knows this, this is probably going to sting just a little bit. It might wound a little bit. It's not something he does because he is callous. It's something he does because he's faithful. He knows what he's called to do. And we should know what we are called to do as well for one another. I know that the term hot mess is a relatively recent term. I don't know what it is, 10, 20 years ago. But it's an old, old idea. We are born into this world a hot mess, and we have been ever since the garden. We are born as sinners. We are born as people with many, many things wrong with us. And as James looks around at the churches that he's writing to, churches that he loves very, very much, um, he sees a mess. He sees things that aren't the way they ought to be. And so because he loves them, and because he is faithful, he addresses them. But as he addresses them, he reminds them not once, not twice, not three times, 14 times in five chapters, he says, you're my brothers. You're my beloved brothers. Many Bibles put a, a footnote in there that, that says uh, it might be better translated brothers and sisters. And I think they're right uh, for this simple reason that James is addressing the, the entire church. Men, women, young, old, rich, poor, he is addressing them all. And through 
the preservation of this letter in this book, um, he's now addressing us. Every brother or sister in this room, James has something to say to us, something to say to you. And I've warned you, sometimes his words sting a little bit. Um, so buckle up. Um, I hope they don't sting because of anything I do. If, uh, if they wound you a bit, I hope it's the Holy Spirit applying the word of James to your life. It's, it's, it's a motif of tough love. That's what we call it these days. Um, and at the very end of James, in fact, that, that tough love marks the entire book. At the very end of James, he essentially passes the baton to the church itself to do tough love. Here's what he says, James 5, 19 and 20, the last two verses of his letter. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. That's what James has been doing. He's been calling back wandering people, people that aren't doing what they know better, what they ought to do. And then he says to the churches, you need to know you can do the same thing. So James loves the people that he writes to. He cares for them. He wants them to love one another in a like manner. So let's begin to see some of what that looks like from our text this morning. It will be James 1, 19 through 27. Uh, we'll take it in three different chunks. Um, the first chunk, verses 19 through 21, our command to meekness, said in some different ways, but meekness is in there, and I think that that's a, a good summary for it. He's commanding meekness. Verses 22 through 25 command action. I hope you're doing and not just hearing. And then verses 26 and 27 just begin to define the action, but in the most glorious way. We will see when we get there. So James 1.19 through 21, we'll start there. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. When James says, know this in this letter, and he does it a few times, it usually carries with it not just some emphasis, hey, you really need to know this, but another idea. You already know this. For example, James 1-2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know, you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So they, they know from experience that even difficult trials bring about a good result. And so James is teaching him, he says, you got to count it all joy. And don't you already know this? That God's doing good things in your life, even through the trials. You see it also in James 4, 17. So whoever knows, same word, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. James is going to be pretty clear throughout his, his letter here that people, 
Christians know more than they do. And that's true of you too, right? Anybody want to raise their hand and say, oh no, the minute I read a text that teaches me something or calls me to do something, I am on it. I don't see any hands raised. And I'm going to put mine down too. Because I don't do it either. It doesn't mean that there's not growth. It doesn't mean you don't learn. It means we know a lot more than we do. And he is reminding them that you know some of this stuff already, don't you? There is a gap between what they know and how they act. There's a gap between what we know and how we act. The answer, of course, is not to know less, but take pains to act in accordance with what they do know. And I mentioned before, I think even though he calls them beloved brothers, he has the entire church in mind because he says, let every person, everyone in this room, everyone in the churches that he is writing to, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. James may know that what he's about to address is going to be more of a problem for some people than others, and that's a, that's a fair observation. Not everybody has the same struggles. But to the degree that the problem exists in even a minority of members, where they don't listen, they're quick to talk, and they stir up anger, it affects the entire church. And so he's addressing the entire church. He addresses them all. He gives them very clear and concise instruction governing what is apparently giving rise to conflict in the church. Biblical writers don't invent problems. They don't need to. There's plenty. You look around and you say, I see where we could grow a little bit. So when James says, you want to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, it's not an imagination that he had that maybe someday that might be an issue somewhere. No, it's the issue he's addressing because it exists in the churches. Conflict arises when people don't listen to one another, when they are quick to speak their mind, and then when they get frustrated that the other person doesn't see it their way. That's the scenario present in the churches. It's why James writes what he does. Now, I know that there's a fair amount of scholarship that says be quick to hear means be quick to hear the word, the scriptures. And it certainly includes that. But kind of the end game for James is I don't like it when you guys fight with each other. It's more of an interpersonal thing to say you guys don't respect one another. You don't listen well. You've all done this, haven't you? You're having a conversation and somebody's speaking. It's their turn to speak. And you're not really listening because you're formulating how you're going to respond. You've already got six verses in your brain that show why they're wrong. So at least included in James' concern is this. You should listen to the word and the word is going to become more prominent in just a moment here. But I think he's saying mostly you're just not good listeners. You talk over one another. You, you bring about conflict. And that conflict, that anger comes into the church. And it's not helping you or your church be the witness that God would have you be to the world. You're not doing a very good job, he says, of being that city on a hill. Of being that salt and that light. So he gives them the antidote. 
Be quick to hear. Listen well. Be eager to listen to your brother or sister. Don't interrupt them. Don't talk over them. Don't dismiss their thoughts or ideas. We're, we're not called to argue and squabble in the refusal to listen honestly, charitably, will in fact lead to arguing and, squ and, and squabbling and wrath. So, so listen, he says. Listen carefully. You should probably even ask questions. Not talk to them, but say, can you develop that idea a little bit more? Can you explain to me a little bit more about what you're thinking there? It's hard to get angry with someone who is really interested in what you have to say. It, it soothes the soul. Then he gives the companion command, and he instructs him to be slow to speak. We've all violated that command many, many times, and you know you have. Some more than others, I am the chief of sinners in that. Um, we listen only well enough and only long enough to gather our superior thoughts, our superior insights, the approved solution that the church all needs to know about. You might be right. Sometimes there's somebody that they really do see what's going on. They really do know the text that should apply to it. They're, they're spot on. But you remember what 1 Corinthians 13 says about people that really know a lot? That know all mysteries? They can be really annoying. They can be the sounding gong and the clanging cymbal if they do not have love. And, and so it's not a matter of, I know that I'm right. It's a matter of, does my brother or sister feel honored, feel respected, feel heard in the conversation that we're having? Because if they don't, I may be right, but I'm not going to convince them because they're offended. So listen carefully, compassionately, humbly, be slow to speak. James is urging them not only to listen more than they talk, but to listen before they talk. Because he says, be quick to hear. Okay, do that right away. That, that should be your first inclination, that you listen well to someone. And then, be slow to speak. That's going to come down the road sometime, after you've heard them well. If we don't do that for one another, anger will be stirred. I think that's James' point. Um, it's interesting. He, he says be slow to anger. He doesn't prohibit all anger. But he does say this. If it's your anger, if it's the anger of man, it's not going to produce the righteousness of God. So if you do the first two things... If you listen well, and you are slow to speak, you have a respectful exchange, probably nobody's going to get angry. And that's good. That's good. Our, our, our men's group sometimes goes into some really interesting topics, and one of the guys posted something um, a couple months ago to say, I've never been part of a group that can talk about this kind of volatile subject and not get mad at each other. That was so encouraging to see that, 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 that he noted that we're listening to one another, we're responding, we don't all agree, but there is no 
malice, there is no anger. I want to give you an example of how this works out in my own life. Um, I want to be a good teacher. I want to point out and apply what is in the text and not what's not in the text. You've been in one of my classes, you know that. We put the text on the board and, and that's what we try to stick with. But I also want to be a compassionate teacher. And every now and then, somebody comes up with a really off-the-wall rabbit trail. Don't you think? And then they go, and here's what I want to do. I want to say, that's, that's interesting. I hadn't thought of that before. And maybe for good reason I hadn't thought of that before. Um, but I want to try to rescue them. I want to find something that they said that is a rabbit trail and somehow connect it to our text so that they don't feel embarrassed for speaking. I, I want to do what Shem and Japheth did and not what Ham did. Ham says, look at dad's disgrace. He's drunk and passed out naked in the tent. Shem and Japheth walk backwards with a, with a cloth and cover their father's shame. Cover shame. And that, that's going to influence greatly how you talk with people, how you even disagree with them. In all this, James is clear. He wants to see change. Things should not be this way. But he doesn't just give them advice on how to change, okay, be quicker to hear and slower to speak. He gives them reasons, good reasons, for why they should make changes. So the first thing he tells them, and we'll mention this, the anger that is stirred up when we are slow to hear and quick to speak doesn't do any good. It does not accomplish the righteousness of God. Verse 20. It's a great reminder to the person who says, if the church would just listen to me, if this person, if the, the deacon board would just listen to me, all this would be fixed. To say that maybe that's not the number one goal. Maybe the number one goal is that whatever happens, the righteousness of God is made clear to anyone watching. I mentioned James does not prohibit anger. Rather, he says that every one of us should be slow to anger, and I will acknowledge that divisions in a church sometimes arise precisely to let people see, okay, who's listening, who's not listening, who's approved, who's not approved. If you want to read about that, it's 1 Corinthians eleven nineteen. Paul says, I know there's divisions, and you need some of them. It, it does something good in a church as well. But it shouldn't mark a church shouldn't mark a person, and it shouldn't mark a church. It's, it's rare that our anger accomplishes anything that pleases God. I am aware, as are all of you, that Jesus turned over tables in the temple one time. When you describe Jesus to people, you don't generally start with the fact he can get angry. That's not the dominant aspect of who he is. He is capable of it. It's a righteous anger. It's an anger that, that, that I believe pleases God, but it doesn't mark him. So there's one reason. It doesn't do any good. The second reason is this. It's in verse 21. Therefore, put away all filthiness 
and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. And I struggled a bit with that. How does that verse fit in? It's got to fit in. It begins with therefore. It's connected to the idea. Um, if, if you want to do what he said in verses 19 and 20, apparently you need to do some of what he says in verse 21 as well. You're not going to have much success in being slow to speak and quick to hear if you don't understand verse 21. So let me give you an analogy that, that helped me. If you confessed to a friend your conviction from James, you've been reading James, and you say, you know, the Lord's laid it on my heart. I need to be quick to hear and slow to speak and slow to anger. And that friend responded with, yes, I've, I've been thinking that for some time, that you need to put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. You might just be offended or wonder, did they hear what you said? Because you just confessed a very mild sin, right? I talk a little too much. I don't listen as well as I should. Where in the world, how does James and why does James jump from what we see as a relatively mild sin to rampant wickedness? That's serious. That's ugly. I think what he's doing is pointing out what Jesus said, that the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart, which is something we may not want to face up to. Words have a source, and Jesus said the source is right here. Probably every person in this room has said something you shouldn't have said to someone, hurt them, offended them, insulted them. And what do you say? I didn't really mean it. Maybe. Or maybe there is something in the, right in here that did mean it. Maybe, maybe it would be better to say, I'm sorry for what I said. It was wrong. It was sin on my part. I spoke from anger and not from love. Would you please forgive me? That will soothe a lot of anger and offense. And it owns up to the fact, it wasn't just a careless word, but by the way, Jesus says we're judged by every careless word because they come out of our heart. So James is pointing out in an almost jarring fashion what he's pointing out is that even those sins that seem common, not particularly outrageous, sometimes have some very deep, serious, twisted roots. And so you need to put away all filthiness and, uh, and all rampant wickedness because they will find their way out and they will find their way out through this. And that's what he's talking about. How are you going to speak and interact with your brothers and sisters? We're not quite to verse 26 yet, but I'm going to quote it now so you can see I'm, I'm not imagining how serious James thinks this is. Verse 26, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. I told you he's blunt. He's telling them to get a hold of their tongue. He's telling them it's connected to their heart. And he's telling them if you don't do it, you're in trouble. This is serious. So the bluntness of verse 21 gave me some pause, although I, I, I think I have some understanding on it. 
It also gave me pause, kind of the odd-sounding promise at the end of that verse. Verse 21 again, Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Okay, hang on a minute. James is writing to the church. He's writing to people that are baptized. He's writing to people that I don't know if they had a church covenant or not, or what, but they have covenanted together in some fashion. They've made a credible profession of faith. Back in chapter 1, verse 18, it talks about how you are brought forth by the word of God. That's James' way of saying you were born again. Heart of stone was taken out, a heart of flesh was put. These are saved people who have been saved by the word of God. But then he gets to verse 21 at the end, and he says, that word is able to save your souls, and he says it to a group of people that he presumes are saved. What in the world is he doing? I think what he's saying is this. The implanted word, the word of truth, the gospel, is the means by which we're brought forth. That's how God saves us. It is also the means by which God sanctifies us. And if you do not see the sanctification happening, you have reason, James says, to question whether the justification happens. Because it's the same God, the same gospel, the same word. He saves people and he transforms people. And if the transformation isn't there, we're not preaching perfection, we are saying there needs to be some growth. You ought to be able to look back five years earlier and where you are now and say, God has been good. I'm not who I was five years ago. That's why James is going to say, as he will in weeks to come, that to say you have faith but not works is nonsense. You're just deceived. He says that's not a real faith. In fact, he says, can that faith save Here's how Paul puts it. 1 Thessalonians 2.13 And we also thank God constantly for this. That when you received the word of God, and I think that that's that moment that they believed, they received it, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Do you hear it? The word of God is what saves you, and the word of God is what's at work in you. It's not two different words. It's not two different sources. It's not two different Holy Spirits. It's not two different salvations. James is saying if you don't see some of this growth, if, if, if the word is not working in you, he says, I'm not entirely sure that I'm comfortable with your spiritual status right now. And again, remember, he loves these people. He really loves these people. I'm sure he offended some of them, but perhaps some of them needed that. J James makes the same point. And I, I, whoever's going to preach these down the road, I'm not trying to steal anybody's thunder. Um, but James 3.9, talking about the tongue again. With it we bless our Lord and Father. Why do we do that? We bless our Lord and Father with our tongue because we love him. He saved us. And with it, we curse people made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing 
and cursing my brothers, these things ought not to be so. There's a discontinuity. If, if with the same mouth you say, I love the Lord, I love the gospel, I love his salvation, and I don't like you. There's a problem there, James says. We use the same mouth to bless God and to curse our brothers. So, 19 through 21. Command meekness that can be seen as people listen well, talk a bit less, bring peace and not anger into a discussion. Um, the word that saved you at the very beginning is now at work to transform you as you just walk out the Christian life. And now he moves from commanding meekness in various forms to commanding action. It's not enough that you have a particular attitude, oh, I'll be meek, I'll be meek, I'll be meek, and I'm going to listen really well to the word. You need to act. James 1.22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. If, if, if you hear but don't do, you're self-deceived, he says. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, He's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So you hear the word, it's referring to the word of God. If it does not spur you on to do the word, have you really heard the word? I think every parent knows this. Um, we speak to our children not so that they can hear us, but that so they can obey us. We can teach our children it's good to eat off clean plates and clean silverware. And so we tell them, please wash the dishes. And they know exactly what we mean, and we come out there two hours later, and the dishes are still in the sink dirty. Have they heard us or not? Not in any way that matters. They nod and agree, but do not act in any thought that they have that, oh, I listened to mom or dad. James says, no, you didn't. You're self-deceived. You heard their words, but you did not act. And they spoke to you to stir action in you. The absurdity of hearing the word but not acting on what you have heard is illustrated by James when he compares such a person to a man who, who sees his face in a mirror and he sees, okay, I've got little facial hair and turning gray and, and all this and you turn away and you can't describe yourself. You don't know what you look like. That's absurd, isn't it? That's James' point. Let me update the illustration a little bit. We've all watched enough Law and Order type shows to know that they will bring somebody in every now and then and they lay out some photos in front of them, a lineup. And they ask you, do, do you recognize any of these people? And you look at them and you go, don't know any of them. And one of them's you. Why have you never seen that scene? in law and order or whatever it's going to be. You know why? Because it's absurd. That's James' point. To say, oh, 
I've even got colored markers. So I can highlight my Bible and all. And um, I love colored markers. I, I, I get myself in trouble here. Um, if you mark up your Bible with colored markers, good on you. Glad you do it. Just make sure that you've got one for here's what I'm supposed to do. And that stands out just as clearly as here's my precious promise. Note what verse 25 promises. If you do, it says, you'll be blessed. A doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. And no one says, you know, I'm really not interested in blessing. I am indifferent as to whether the God of the universe looks upon me with favor. That's about as crazy as hearing what you are to do to secure that blessing and then never doing it. Being a hearer and not a doer. So J James doesn't tell them much in there other than that you know a lot more. You, what you know is up here, what you do is down here, and we need to close the gap. And we're not going to bring this one down, we're going to bring this one up. Now on to that third section, which I love so much. Verses 26 and 27, which kind of address the question, well, you, other than how we interact in terms of conversation, hearing, speaking, not stirring anger, all that, you really haven't told us much of what you want us to do, James. Well, he gives them some action. And I love the action that he gives them. The first thing he does is underline the absolute necessity of acting on what information he's already given them. So he wants them to act. And he says, now you know one of the things I just told you. So he says in verse 26, if anyone thinks he's religious and doesn't do what I just told you in 19 through 21. Actually, 19 through 25. You don't do it. If you don't bridle your tongue, but deceive your heart, religion's worthless. Hard words, folks. I'm glad they're James. I would not have the courage to say those if they weren't. So the first thing he does is underline the absolute necessity of acting on information he's always already given them. It's kind of that exclamation point. Quick to hear, slow to speak, mic drop with that. So, um, let's skip over that part. That's kind of a negative though, isn't it? Just get a hold of your tongue, people. That's kind of what James is saying. But, is there anything positive is there anything encouraging in this? There is. James 1.27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. Pause right there. James has just gone from worthless religion in verse 26 to pure and undefiled religion in verse 27. I cannot conceive of a greater gap of spiritual reality. Um, so, Surely, as he unpacks a pure and undefiled religion, it's going to be with some amazing feats of love, of sacrifice. He, he's going to be a, a martyr someday. There's already been martyrs. Maybe it's giving your life for the gospel, quite literally. Maybe it's building the hospital. Maybe it's starting a string of, of urban youth programs to deal with at-risk kids. Whatever it is, it's some huge project because you want to be undefiled. You want to be pure before God. Better up your game. No. Religion that is pure 
and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Knock on a door. That's what he just told you. Go visit someone who could benefit from a visit. Go visit the widow. Go visit the widower. Maybe bring dinner and maybe, oh my gosh, stay and eat it with them. Because their life has just changed drastically. There's nobody sitting on the other side of the table anymore. We don't have many orphans in our culture, true orphans, we have some. But we have a lot of people who've come from another state or another country. And they don't have any family here. They don't have any support network here. They kind of don't know exactly how things work maybe in certain... Knock on their door. Befriend them. Here's what's so amazing here. I expected pure and undefiled religion to be defined by something massive. Something amazing, something that we, we're going to find William Carey or James Patton or Amy Carmichael. We're going to find some amazing missionary who, who left everything behind and gave their life for the gospel. And yes, that's pure and undefiled too. But so is visiting. So is looking around and seeing a neighbor and saying, you know, I bet you they would like a visit. I know there's been some hard things in their life recently. Let's go knock on their door. And we should probably call first. That wasn't an option in James' day. But, uh, but we can call first. Visit. Get your hands dirty. A brother recently shared with me a visit he made to a couple that were, in fact, facing hard times. He said, I don't think I did them any good. Didn't cry then. Went home and cried. God said, what you just did was pure and undefiled in my sight, he says. And we so diminish small acts of kindness that we don't realize how much pleasure they give God. If you've not read Matthew 10 in some time, read it, maybe this afternoon. Jesus is sending out the disciples two by two and don't take any bags and this is where you shake your dust, the dust off your feet if they don't welcome you. And, and he's talking about massively important things. And when he gets near the end, he says, truly I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of cold water because you are my disciples, truly I say to you, they will not lose their reward. God loves small acts of kindness, small acts of, of, of building a bridge between yourself and someone else so that they've got someone that they can talk to and you can bear their burdens. I love this. Um, another brother shared with me that he just took our new church directory. Hope he got one if you don't get one. And go through it. And he found someone he didn't know. And he called him up. That's kind of weird, isn't it? And kind of glorious. And they're having lunch tomorrow. Go visit. 
it's not the be-all, end-all. But when James says, would you start acting on what you know? I think it is so glorious and so indicative of the kindness of our God that the way that actually works itself out is in a way that's accessible to every one of you. Nobody can say, well, I can't visit, can't call, can't bring a dinner over to somebody who's in a tough spot. The goodness of God, the things he is willing to praise, to say that was so good, that's delightful. I love it when you do that, are so simple and so accessible. And then finally note the verse ends and the chapter ends with the word about personal holiness. We don't, we don't want to be a social gospel where all we see is hungry people, needy people, at-risk people and all that, and we're going to be all about that while we sleep with our girlfriend or our boyfriend or steal from our employer or do whatever else we do. So he ends on a, wor- on a word of personal holiness. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. It's not an either or, it is a both end. And I don't know if you saw a U.S. congressman, young woman, was asked to speak at a prayer breakfast this last week. I don't know which one, whether it was in the Capitol or whatever. And so she's getting up to speak at the prayer breakfast. And she says, you know, my alarm went off this morning at 7 o'clock, and I start to get up to get ready because I know I'm speaking at the prayer breakfast. And my fiancé grabs me and pulls me back, and I have to say, oh, no, hon, we don't have time for sex, for sex this morning. And now you're going to pray. Keep oneself unstained by the world. It's not an excessively difficult command to understand or to follow, and it just shows how far we have unfortunately fallen. You you wouldn't have done that 20 years ago. You wouldn't have just boldly said, yes, I'm I'm living with my fiance before we're married, Um, and, and it's no big deal, right? I can pray at the prayer breakfast. As we close, I just want us to note there's no command in verse 27. It's one of the most glorious verses in James, and there's no command. He's not ordering them to visit widows or orphans. He's not ordering them to remain unstained by the world. He has the right to. He's an apostle. He's simply defining. He's illustrating for them how easy it is, on the one hand, to have pure and undefiled religion before the Lord your God. Now, I know it would happen in James' day. It happens in our day. You get to verse 27, there's no command, and you go, oh, good, I can hear everything James says, and I don't have to do anything. You're in the wrong book. His point is that we learn in order to do. We listen well. We guard our tongue. We we seek to bring peace and not conflict into the church. We learn much in order to do much and to do it well. And in the end, a cup of cold water or a visit to someone who's going through a difficult season is a glorious thing in God's eyes. Let's pray. Lord, I'm stunned. I I know 
verse 27. I've known verse 27 for decades, and I have been stunned by it for decades, and it comes back to me all the time. But it also comes back with conviction that I probably don't visit enough. I pray for myself, and I pray for any in this room that share that same conviction that we will act. We won't just be hearers, we will be doers. And we will do because we believe God when he says we will be blessed in our doing. We believe God when he says through James, this is pure, this is undefiled, this is delightful. And so we'll do the small things. And maybe someday you'll lead us to something greater. But in the meantime, Lord, what a glorious promise that we can please you with very, very simple acts of love. In Jesus' name, amen.